0: Well, we've been uh, spending some time over these past few months working through a little series we've called The Seven Deadly Sins, which we came to the end of. Uh, really, it wasn't quite planned as, as well as it worked out. I have to confess, it seemed as though we finished just as, as we went on holiday, which worked out really well. Uh, and so we can start a new one now, which we're calling Between Two Pillars. Uh, the story of Samson, a relatively short series just to um, take us into a particular part of the Bible, which for a whole load of people, and I would say for many 21st century people, is a real challenge. It's a real problem. How do we deal with, and we'll, we'll, get the, we'll open up, shall we, with Judges chapter 1. We're going to be dealing with, if you want to go back and read the stuff, familiarize yourself with the story of Samson, Read from Judges chapter 13 onwards for his life. But let's have a look at how Judges opens. Judges chapter 1, we read this little uh, picture uh, of what's gone on. Those of you who aren't familiar with the Bible, how do we deal with this? How do we understand? Uh, Well, let's put it this way. It seems as though there's toes and thumbs strewn across the land. There's people having bits cut off them. There's battles and all of that kind of thing. And we say that is the reality of the Bible. What's what's happening here? One of the things that I think is uh, amazing is how willing we are to be desensitized really to um, the reality of death and and. And gore and battle and f- conflict and all of that kind of thing. To the point where actually uh, Call of Duty Black Ops is, c- I think currently, the number one multi-platform best-selling game. Uh, those of you who are really impressed that I know what a multi-platform best-selling game is, I just thank Wikipedia. I think it's great. Um, but now here we've got a game which is actually written around the idea of shooting and killing people and we can be we, we have that in every area of life really don't we, we have it in our gaming, we have it on the movies uh, how many movies are structured around the idea of real violence and all of that kind of thing and then we get to the Bible and we say whoa hang on a sec hang on a sec we don't like the idea of, of God And conflict uh, and blood and battle. No, we we kind of separate out and we pitch in whole Christianity and faith and the message of the Bible, and we say all of that should be nice and it should be safe and kind and gentle and good, Uh, and we allow all of life to carry on, but. But the message of God can't touch that. And we we get offended when that kind of thing opens up. You know, the reality is we could not live with a God like that. We could not live with a God who is only engaged with all of the nice, sweet and soft and gentle stuff. Because the reality of this world is conflict and death and bloodshed. That's the reality of this world. And the great thing about the message of the Bible is that we have a God who is willing to engage in the reality of this world, in the reality of life. The fact that this is not a kind of, a a sort of, a book which is written only for certain people, only for nice people. You know? The reality is that sin and death and conflict... Is life in this world? And the God that is presented in the Bible is a God who is willing, if you like, to put it in a particular way, he is willing to get his hands dirty in the grimy business of redeeming this world which is broken and sinful. It's not like God operates on some sort of plateau separated from reality. He doesn't. That's the God that we need. But what do we specifically do with this? We've got this people group. Uh, We read here that uh, Joshua... One of the great religious leaders, one of the great leaders of God's people, he's taken God's people on, he's taken them into the land that God has promised them. And there has been an initial sort of blitzkrieg, if you like, there's been an initial taking of the land. Those of you who know the story, one of the first things, the first (laughs) thing that they do is they take Jericho Uh, If you know more intimately the story uh, of God's people, we know that 40 years earlier uh, they'd sent some spies into the land to decide whether this land which God had promised them was going to be possible for them to take. Two spies believed that it was possible and the rest of them believed that we've got no chance. They went into the land, they saw the fortifications of Jericho, which uh, massive walls... In, in ancient days, sort of impossible to, to breach. The kind, of, um, the kind of protection which for the ancients was just, these are just a band of nomads. How can they take a, a fortified city? We've got no chance. But Joshua and Caleb believed that God had promised them a land. And they said, we can do it. And the people responded, we can't do it. And so God said, right, okay, you're going to walk around the, uh, around, the, around the desert for 40 years until all of you, all of you who didn't believe have died off and now you can go in and you can take the land. The first thing that they do is they go into Jericho and they take the land. And you say, wow, that's just, how how can that be? That God is giving them this land. I mean, this is the land that, for the, for the Canaanites, isn't it? This is the Canaanites' land. Is it because God thinks that, that this bunch of Israelites are somehow holy and special and therefore they get given that land? Well, we read clearly in the Bible that that is not what God thinks. In fact, he says, it is not because you are good. It's not because you're righteous that I'm giving you this land. You are getting this land... Because you are my means of judging wickedness. The wickedness of the Canaanite people. We read it in Leviticus. We read it in Deuteronomy. What was the problem with the Canaanite people? We read in Leviticus that God says to his people, Okay, when you go into this land, you are to live according to my way of living. my, My initial design for human life. My initial design for relationships. You are to do this. You are to get married. Uh, And then you are to form uh, a community of relationship. Which fosters a family. And it is a family at that point of of unity. You become a new family. And you become faithful in that family. (laughs) Uh, And how are the Canaanites living? Read in Exodus chapter 18. uh, Sorry Leviticus chapter 18. just, uh, uh, Just a mess of sexual relationships, God says, you live like this, don't live like the people of Canaan, who are living with sexual relationships where fathers are having sex with their daughters and sons are having sex with their aunts and their mothers uh, and their grandmothers and you know that sounds that sounds horrible, doesn't it you shouldn't even be saying something like that should you Well that's what the Bible says that says that is exactly what is going on in Canaan. And God sees that and he says, that is not how people who I've created in my image should be living. They have not responded and therefore they will be judged. God is getting involved in the grimy business of justice. So they are messed up in terms of their relationships with each other. We read in Deuteronomy that they are further messed up, chapter 13. We read that they are messed up in terms of their spiritual relationship as well. Because what they are involved in is in divination, in, in witchcraft, in consulting the dead, in all sorts of necromancy. In all of those kind of weird, crazy, spiritual issues which are dark and dangerous. And they are engaging with the black spiritual forces of this world. So let's have a look now at what's going on in Canaan. They're messed up in their relationships horizontally. They're messed up in their relationships with each other. At a a deep level, they are not living out what it is to be a human being made in the image of God. They're messed up in their relationships with each other. And they are loving it. And they are messed up in their relationships vertically. They're messed up in their relationships with God. They are not living according to the one true living God, who has previously in time made himself known to this world and they have rejected it. Now do you see what is going on? Is this God saying, you Israel, you're just lovely and good and kind? In actual fact, they're a mess, <laughs> Israel, but he says, you are my means for bringing to this world What I will do through the history of this world, right the way through, I will confront what is wrong. Now you say, well, aren't we free to live like that? Aren't we just free to live the way we want to live? Why should God have an engagement in that? You read Leviticus chapter 18, you kind of see the kind of sexual relationships that are going on in Leviticus (laughs) chapter 18. And the reality is that if our popular press got a hold of that kind of thing going on in, in a little village in our country, they would be swarming all over it and we would be calling for blood. Why? Because we know that it is wrong, don't we? We know that that kind of uh, relationship is abusive and it is twisted and it is sick. And it is dangerous. It is not a good thing. It is a bad thing. And God says, I will not let that carry on for good. <laughs> so there's the first thing that we see. When we, when we approach a book like this and we see blood and guts all over the place and battles, we've got to keep this kind of thread running through the Bible, which is this. God will deal with wrong. He will deal with it temporarily at certain points in history to remind this world that he will deal with it and he will ultimately deal with it finally and completely on the day that we've just been talking about. But what he will do is he will make sure that this world knows that that can't carry on. That's a great thing. That is the God who we worship. That is the God who is revealed to us in the Bible. So that's the first thing. Second thing is this. Isn't it fascinating? This Adonai Bezach. Fascinating character. He is one of the kings of one of the cities, and he's taken. And um, they cut off his thumbs, cut off his big toes. And he says, Why? <laughs> well, that's completely disabling if you haven't got a big toe apparently you fall over if your big toe isn't working you can fall over as some folks know big toe doesn't work you fall over thumb isn't working you, you, can't, you can't pick the stuff up you, you're disabled you're broken you're you, you dysfunction and now this man comes into this situation and uh, he's taken he's, he's brought captive by the By the people of God. And the people of God. Cut off his finger. His thumbs. Cut off his toes. And what does he say? When Judah attacked. The Lord gave the Canaanites. And the Perizzites into the hands. And they struck down 10,000 men. At Bezek. It was there that they found Adonai Bezek. And fought against him. Putting him to rout. Uh, The Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled but they chased him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his pig toes what does he say what does what's his assessment of what's gone on you know it's easy isn't it for us to sanctimoniously sit back and say oh isn't that scandalous that God's people have done that what is his perspective of what's gone on because he says this 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off, have picked up scraps under my table. In other words, look at me. In the past, in my life, I've been the kind of person who has subdued 70 other kings. That's what Canaan was like. That's another little window, isn't it, into the kind of world that the Canaanites were living. City-states, which would uh, run rampage against other states uh, and just bring Uh, Killing and mutilation. And uh, here's this king saying. That's what I've done in the past. But. Now God. Has paid me back. What's his perspective? His perspective. Is not the Israelites have paid me back. He sees it. As God's judgment. He sees it as God's. Involvement. God's engaging. God's as God. Has grabbed a hold of him. You see what. Isn't that so important. Because here we can so easily say. That shouldn't happen. That, that's, that's gratuitous violence. But God is willing to engage with this world. In the grimy business of sin. And God is willing to engage in this world. And use the language that this world understands. You see? That king understood that the kind of triumph that had been experienced was not the experience of a successful king. They understood that this was God's judgment. That's what he understood. I wonder how many times in our lives we have that sense. We have a sense that there is stuff going on. We have a sense that God is speaking to us. We have a sense that there is a movement which is God confronting us. I want to just encourage you folks. When God confronts you like that. When God faces you up, it is a really, really good thing to back down. It is a really good thing at that point to bow the knee and say, I surrender. I wonder whether that king reached that point. We don't know, do we? All we know is that he saw that this was the judgment. So what happened from there? So that kind of, really this, this afternoon is, to a certain extent, it's doing two things. It's introducing judges. It's introducing this man, uh, or the, the foundations of this man, Samson. Because we now move on to this next point. What goes on between then, when they first start going into the land, and chapter 13? Well, we read in chapter 13, verse 1, we read this. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, so the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. And that has been a cycle that has gone on again and again and again. In fact, on six previous occasions between chapter 1 and chapter 13, we have that phrase. We have the phrase, And again, the people did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Again, they did it. But there is a difference here because on every other occasion, until this point, we have another phrase that comes a little bit later on where it says, and the people cried out to God. What can we learn from that? How does that challenge us this afternoon? I think it's an incredibly important message that we see here. We see that it is possible, firstly, to kind of do the job in human terms, just a kind of a part job. Joshua goes into the land, and there's this initial taking of the land, and then there is the next phase, which is the subduing of the land. Some of you have become Christians. Some of you have committed your life to following the Lord Jesus. You have said that that, that's kind of like the initial blitzkrieg. That's like Joshua coming into the land and the land is swept clean. But I know that some of you and some of us, I would say, some of us are still in that situation where we have not dealt with the land of our lives. You know, we've dealt with the initial. And one of the things that we are called to do is to say, having become what you are, now live what you are. Root it out. Deal with it. And that is precisely what God's people don't do. They don't deal with stuff. You know, they they are supposed to get rid of the sexual immorality. They are supposed to get rid of it. Either the people change or they go. That's the story that we see. They've got to change or go. And they've got to change in terms of sexual immorality. They've got to change in terms of their worship of of the dead and witchcraft. And it's either get rid or change. It's the stuff in our lives where we know that it's the get rid or or change. It's, It's just not happened. We've not done that. There is stuff which is still going on. Stuff which we, we don't deal with. We've not cleared out the land of our hearts. We've not got rid of it. We've not, got, we've not changed it. So God handed them over to the Philistines. How does that sound to you? Sound hard? I think that those verses are actually some of the most grace-filled verses in the Old Testament, in a way. What if God did nothing? What if God did nothing in your life and in my life? In the areas where we know we need to root stuff out. What if God just allowed us to continue to be comfortable? Do you know you just carry on? It's not a problem. It's not an issue you just carry on. Can we live like that? Or does God challenge us and make and confront us and deal with us? And eventually we know and I know and you know, I, I, well I know, and if you haven't been here let me, let me give you the heads up because in our Christian experience it's likely that you will get here unless God's grace is working in you in a remarkable way. We can hold on to stuff so long and so hard. That God deals with us in such a way that it feels like we're handed over to the Philistines. He hands us over because we cannot remain comfortable in our sinfulness. We cannot remain comfortable. We are a different people and we cannot live like that. And therefore he says, I will not allow you to stay like that. I will make it so uncomfortable that you will be confronted by this and you must deal with it. <laughs> That's grace. That's God's grace working; that He doesn't just say, "Whatever." We live in this world. In fact, in fact, these uh, the children of Israel going into the land; they live in the land. But always switch your mobile off. <laughs> but but there's um, there's a challenge, isn't there? It's a bit like something. It's a bit like the difference between a piece of bread and a stone. ...being immersed in water. I want to ask, are we immersed in water as a stone or as a piece of bread? Because we have to be immersed in this world. We've got to be. In fact, one of the errors of the church in years gone by... ...is that we we thought the best way to deal with it is to to not immerse. (laughs) To not immerse, to kind of hide away, to do the monastery thing... to, 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 ...to kind of cut ourselves off completely... We've got to be immersed. The children of Israel would never be the means of God judging the Canaanites if they hadn't been immersed in the land. They had to go into the land. They had to become immersed. But there is a difference between being immersed and being absorbed. We can be a stone immersed in it. But a stone never absorbs water. It remains a stone. It's surrounded by it, but it remains a stone. But you throw a loaf of bread into water, and what happens? Initially, it stays looking like a loaf of bread. But gradually, bit by bit, it absorbs the water, and it softens up. And then what happens? It starts to break up. It starts to fall into little pieces. And eventually it is no longer recognisable as a loaf of bread. It is dissolved. It is absorbed. And the challenge of this, in fact the challenge of this whole series really, is just that. Are we going to be those who are living, immersed, but not absorbed? Just not sucking everything in. Because that is the problem that the people had. And so God handed them over. And on this occasion, go back and read the, read the book. On this occasion, there is no plea to God. There is no crying out. What is at stake? I'll tell you what's at stake. You and me. Right now. How, how does that work out? Because we are the continuation of the success of God's people in Israel. <laughs> The very fact that God kept a people. The very fact that he promised centuries earlier that he would fulfill his promise of redeeming a people through his son. Israel had to be successful. So that Jesus would come. But right at this point, they're like a soggy loaf in Canaan. Absorbing everything, no longer having the heart to cry out, no longer having the heart to plead. And so what happens? Grace incident number two. What happens? God speaks. Verse three. The angel of the Lord appeared to this woman. All we know her is as Manoah's wife. We don't know her name. She's Manoah's wife. And he he says to her, you are barren and childless, but you are going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. Now, see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink and that you do not eat anything unclean. You will become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor because the boy is to be a Nazarite dedicated to God from the womb. He will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hand of the Philistines. I'm sending a savior, even though you haven't cried out. Isn't that amazing? But you're to be different. You two live differently. Let this bit about um, drink no wine or other fermented drink. What, what's, why? Why drink no wine or other fermented drink? Why? God is effectively, I believe, saying this. Remember who you are. Remember that you are the people who walked through the wilderness for 40 years and I kept you there. You never planted vines because you kept moving. You never had time to ferment wine because you kept moving. Remember who you are and live out who you are. Be marked as who you are. And that message comes across again to God's people again and again. Be marked by who you are. Live as a people who do not see this world as home and therefore do not absorb it. Who do not see this world as final security and therefore do not live for it. But be immersed in it. Isn't it fascinating that God comes to this woman In hopelessness, for a start, she's barren. What does that mean? I think it's really important. Very quickly, we're going to have to cover that. What does barrenness mean? What did it mean in ancient times? It meant security, actually. It meant surviving into your your older life. If you did not have children in the ancient world, two things were likely to happen. Other more powerful forces were likely to overtake you. And you were not likely to have anybody to provide for you in your old age. And therefore you would be a pauper and die. And therefore no woman would ever want to be without children. Because it was their simply, their survival. Now a group of younger women stood around the well. Gathering water and one of them would turn around, turn around and say, I-, I don't want children. They would say, well. What? Have you got a death wish? This is not, this is not about children. This is about provision and security. We've got to detach this kind of issue from so many of the issues that we tend to think about when it comes to to children. This is not talking about that. It's talking about security and what's more, it's talking about every Israelite woman would be hoping to be the bearer of the Messiah. (laughs) And she was never going to do that. But God comes in barrenness and in obscurity. We don't even know her name. Who is she? But God comes in and brings a saviour. When you read that, does it take your mind to something else? Because it should. Another Saviour. Another Saviour who is born to the ultimate barren woman. She's a virgin. Her name was Mary. You couldn't be, in a sense, more barren than a virgin. You see the picture that God is preparing for us. Is this about a barren woman? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. It's about God over all of history. Creating little brush strokes in history. To say are you ready? Are you ready for the greater saviour? The saviour who will be born to a woman. Who is truly and completely and utterly barren. Who is obscure. Who is hopeless and helpless. And yet I bring a saviour into this world. And his name is Jesus. I think it is a tragedy. For the church. when, When these kind of texts are used. To portray something that it is not. When these kind of texts are used. To kind of bring a sense of guilt. Or, or discomfort. This is about Jesus. This is about the hope that Jesus brings—utter helplessness and a real saviour. And this is where God's people are now. And you might not be one of. You might not, at this point, be somebody who has committed your life to following Jesus as your saviour. Where does this take you? I would just want to suggest to you how amazing that the God who is portrayed in the Bible is a God who, if you like, is able to mold and paint and shape the whole of this world's history to prepare us for a moment in time. A Canaanite land that is rebellious, And he uses a tiny little group of people to subdue it. A sequence of barren women. Not to talk about pregnancy but to talk about the ultimate barren woman who would bring the ultimate saviour. Are we ready to engage with a God who is that amazing and that in control? Because that is the God that the Bible portrays. And that is the God who we sang about earlier. One day we will see him as the savior of the world, and we need We need to be ready. I'd encourage you, why don't you talk to somebody who you know is a Christian, if you haven't already? why don't you talk to them about the kind of personal experiences that they've had, of, of what it means to be grappling with life, and to finding that there's things that you, you're being confronted with in a real way, life-changing experiences. If you are a Christian, be encouraged by talking to somebody else who has gone through some of the stuff that you're grappling with. Let's knit together, let's build together.